This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. If you hadn't noticed, last week we ran a pledge drive for the Patreon offering that we do to support the show. And I can tell you that we're extending that for one week. So if you're listening to this and you're not a subscriber, which you probably aren't because there's a different version, slightly different version that goes out to subscribers, then head over to patreon.com slash scuba official. There are two tiers. The solidarity tier, which is $4 a month, which gets you extra content, extra bonus podcasts. It's been a bunch of stuff going up recently. We usually do at least one a week of different types. In fact, there's one on the regular feed actually that I made public last week in which I reviewed the Spotify viral top 10 in the UK. It was quite fun. So I do those kinds of things and it's always there. It's a good laugh, basically. And then on the musicality tier, it's a bit more expensive, it's 10 bucks a month. You basically get on the Hot Flush promo list and we give away high quality downloads every week. So it's a good thing to do, basically. And as part of Pledge Drive, if you sign up to the musicality tier, you get a free musicality t-shirt. And let me tell you, it's a bad boy t-shirt. Charcoal grey, black Hot Flush logo. And yeah, it's really, really decent. So yeah, one more week of this. So if you want to get involved, this is the time to do it. This week on the show, we have someone I've been trying to get on for ages. We kept missing each other. We kept rescheduling, but finally it's done. It's Chloe Robinson, formerly known as DJ Barely Legal, which in my opinion is one of the great DJ names, but not one you can probably have the entirety of your career. So yeah, it's great to have her on. We talk about her journey through music, which has been eventful, certainly eventful. She has lots to say and is an interesting person. So yeah, I think you're going to enjoy this one. Just before we get started, if you're not going to do the Patreon thing, which is completely fine, then leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. There is a Spotify playlist which contains all the episodes as well as much of the music that we discuss on the show. And finally, join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. There's a private area for patrons, but there's you know a big area for non-patrons too. So if you've got anything to say about the show, if you've got any feedback, got any suggestions, that is the place to do it. Okay, without further delay, here is Chloe Robinson. Chloe Robinson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So our paths crossed this weekend, uh, Blitz Club in Munich, right? How was your Blitz Club experience? Uh, Really, really, really good. Um, I was in the other room to you, but um, hopefully when I return, I'll be in the main room. But yeah, I've always wanted to play um, at that venue. And the first time I went there, I played at like an empty gig in Munich. And then I went straight from the end of my set to um, to Blitz Club. And it was like the first time experiencing um, Zenka Brothers. And it went on till midday, but I think I left at like 10 a.m. <laughs> I was just on my ones. Um, so it was, yeah, it was so sick to kind of go full circle and be playing after Zenka Brothers. Um, and yeah, it was, it was great. Really good, really good sound system. Um, 
and really really nice stuff that work there what makes a really huge difference when like the arts liaisons and stuff are just very helpful yeah they've done a great job with the venue like both rooms are are super good too it was my first time playing there as well but I I took a look in the room that you were in uh, before I went on and yeah it's a great second room that isn't it it's like it's it's big enough to be a proper party but like you know still you know made the effort with the sound and like the whole vibe in there it was really cool yeah, it had a really like wavy wall as well. Can't really describe it. It's a mad pattern on one of like the walls, and I feel like it doesn't have to be completely full for it to feel like a vibe. It's quite like quite a, yeah. like a dingy basementy vibe in that room. So yeah, um, yeah, had a really good time. Played for three hours and could have played for longer. Got asked to play for longer, but I thought I need to probably go to bed because um, I finished at six and I knew that I would go into then for go in um, go into the main room and be there till 8 30 in the morning so I I went back to the hotel went to sleep like a good girl yeah I mean I totally feel you there I was in bed by three um well I have been trying to get my kind of head back into playing you know a proper schedule of shows again like after the pandemic we also our paths also crossed in in the states quite recently didn't they at that yeah cross at crossfest at san diego yeah, right, and, yeah. and also in barcelona yeah right but your schedule for that crossfest trip was ridiculous right i seem to remember remind me exactly what that was it sounded horrific <laughs> yeah um so i flew from london to portland i had two hours in the hotel before i had to go to the venue um I then got to the venue, DJ'd, and then went straight from the venue to the airport, flew to San Diego. Um, I had about a two-hour gap before I needed to head from San Diego, wherever I was, to the festival. So my friend had a hotel, so I just went and caught up with them for like an hour, went to the festival, DJ'd, had an hour and a half at the festival after my set, then I had to go back to San Diego airport <laughs> and then I had to go to London and then connect to Aberdeen. And then I had, I actually had an hour in the hotel, but then I had to go <laughs> and DJ straight away because it was, um it was like one of those day festival things. Um, so yeah, that was really fun. I did manage to get sleep on the flight though. So I, I, I actually did all right, but I thought I was going to have a breakdown at San Diego airport. Um, I had to like have a little, because it was like 1am in the UK, so I didn't have anyone to talk to and I was just going under. Um, but my friend, you know, power from Foreign Beggars, he's in Dubai at the moment. So he calmed me down a little bit. We had a little chat at the airport, a little catch up, but I thought, oh my God, I can't do this. I think I just needed sleep. I mean, that is that is a horrible, a horrible trip. Really horrible. I mean, like, I, I guess the problem with the DJ circuit, right, is that it kind of rewards doing more. Like, you know, you're you're constantly pressurized to to play out all the time, and it feels like that you kind of need to to kind of perpetuate your career and kind of like build it. So, how have you how have you coped with that over the, over the years? Uh I feel, I'm going to be very honest here, I feel like I'm an act that's never really quite managed to just sort of like be kind of really successful as a solo act. I think I do very well at festivals. I do well when I'm on like a mixed bag lineup, but 
I've really had to kind of like hone in on trying to become, you know, like a solo act. Like I want to go and see Chloe um, or like my old alias, Barely Legal. And I do feel like I have to constantly sort of prove myself every month and, you know, really stay on top of content and whatnot and not fall off. So, yeah, I, I do feel like I have to do all these shows um, to kind of like keep up and not fall off. And... Um, it's been a really important year in a sense of, right, I've changed my name. I'm eventually now playing with all these artists that I've wanted, wanted to be on lineups with for like years now. And, um, I'm really proud of that. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, I, I've got the freedom to play exactly what I want. Um, I can go to clubs now and I can test my own productions, which is really exciting. Uh, and you know I had my first EP out, so this year I, I, you know I, it's it's like the first year of my new name, so I have to be appearing on the lineups for people to know who I am, and to kind of almost build a new fan base. I've carried few, I'm sure I've carried few people from like my old fan base, but it's definitely like I've definitely had to sort of create a new fan base as well. And it's been really, really difficult because um, because I fell really ill a year ago. And most people who have got the condition that I've fallen ill with literally like quit their jobs, go and move back with their parents and just spend like two years like healing. And it's it's sad. But yeah, just like missing out on their life, basically, like having to quit their relationships um isolate and <laughs> I've like not had that as an option and it's been really difficult and I think I've become a lot like I've, I've become an act that's been playing a lot more in Europe now um and a lot less in the UK so it's been a lot of air, a lot of flights I think I counted I think I've done like f- over 50 flights this year since yeah, I yeah. since I since I fully so it, my condition is called topical steroid withdrawal. Let me let me just let me just stop you there because this is something I really want I do want to talk about and I wasn't quite sure how to get it into this conversation because I mean as you said you've had a crazy year in that you changed your DJ name and I want to talk about that separately because that that's that's something in itself but like you said you've got this condition that you've developed which has coincided with your kind of diary and your career kind of exploding a little bit so yeah just t- t- tell us about the like the condition and then how you've coped with it so um during the pandemic I was living in Mexico uh I wasn't traveling I was just in one place and uh, I think you can only do no. Then then I went to Colombia and just like moved to, to one place in Colombia for three months, um, and it it was a very very strict lockdown. Um, there was a lot of a lot of elements of stress, and um, my skin just went crazy, and I I don't know what happened, and um, I kind of just like bought creams over the counter and just like use them. And I think what I thought was a flare up was the start of basically um, learning that these steroid creams had stopped working on my skin. And um, I got back to the UK and they put me on an even stronger cream and uh, put me on like two long courses of oral steroids. And uh, 
I've, I've just come to realise that during that whole period, I was actually going through like topical steroid withdrawal and just making it worse by putting more steroids on my skin. Um, and it's essentially, there's not been any research into it. So if you go to a lot of dermatologists, they'll tell you that your condition isn't real, which um, isn't great. I found I found one that... Because they, they say it isn't real. Did I hear that correct? Yeah. Wow. They tell okay. you they tell you that it's not real and that you need to keep using steroid cream. And they tell you that you're not going to get better if you don't. And then I try to explain, well, I've got examples of people that have stopped using steroid cream and two years on, they've got perfect skin with like the odd flare. And before they were a complete mess. So how do you explain that? And they're just like, you're lying. These are people from like Harley Street and stuff, like private dermatologists. So it's just like ridiculous. But um, yeah, so I'm going through withdrawal. And I think what's happened is that my body can't, if I'm right, can't produce its own cortisol. So it was, it was relying on the creams to create cortisol so once I remove that from my um from my lifestyle um my body just went absolutely crazy and I've been free from steroids since February or April April I think and yeah actually since April that I've caught 50 something flights which is (laughs) I don't know how I've done it it's been um it's been really really difficult I mean, yeah, it must be extremely challenging. I mean, in particularly, like, you know, as a performer, like, obviously what you look like is is super important. And I think particularly as a as a woman as well, it must be, like, extremely challenging just mentally, I guess. So, I mean, as, I mean I'm mean, i presuming it, it must have been a really, really challenging period getting through that. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, I... Do you know what? Okay, I um I've never been someone who wears makeup really. I mean, I wear eyeliner. Sometimes I wear well, sometimes I used to wear um tinted foundation, but I you know, I I all I, I don't like have outfits for shows. I used to, but then I just was like whatever, I just wear my baggy t-shirts and just I do I like my fashion, but um, I, I don't think I, I wouldn't say that I'm compared to a lot of compared to a lot of people um, a lot of other females I don't think that I'm as bothered about my appearance um, because honestly it's some of some of the states that I've looked and still gone and done the shows like I don't think a lot of people would have done it I think they would have been like, I can't do it. Like, I've like I've had like skin literally like shedding off me, and I've had to DJ with like a like a bowl of ice next to me because I've got nerve damage in my hands, whilst I'm like bright red and my face is burning and I'm having all these reactions to like the smoke in the clubs and you know from the smoke machines, the sweat, the heat. Um, and then I'm going back to the hotels and the sheets are flaring me up and I'm just having to like run a bath and just cry and sleep in the bath and just hope that I don't drown. This is really, really extreme stuff, right? This is, I mean, every DJ's got a sob story, but this is a, this is some, this is a real kind of serious thing. 
Like, yeah. I'm laughing about it, but I mean, it's because that you seem so kind of stoic, you know, in, in your approach to it. Oh, yeah, I think I'm like, I think, I think I'm just speaking about it so calmly, even though it's so extreme because I'm just, I've kind of, I've, I've, I've done it and like, it's just, it's just became, it became the norm. And it, I, I just accepted it, and I didn't turn the the only show that the only shows I've turned down were New Zealand because I was like that's ridiculous because it was linked to an India tour, so it would have been four weeks away from home, and I was like I can't do that, and I'm not flying to New Zealand. Um, but yeah, it's been it, it's been really really hard, and there's been some shows where I physically haven't been able to sleep because of insomnia. And I have been literally awake for like two and a half, three days. Like, because I physically can't sleep. And I'm like, not drinking. Because I, I went sober at the start of this because my body was so hypersensitive that I couldn't, I couldn't even handle like a drop of alcohol. That would just absolutely mess me up. Um, so yeah, it has... <laughs> If, yeah, if people, if people, yeah, I was literally crying like after every show. I, and I, to be honest, like people would be like, well, you know, you need to put your health first. But this was me putting my health first. This was me looking after my mental health. Like it was, it was kind, it, it was kind of worth it. Like I, my happy place was still behind the decks, even if I was crying in pain. Like I was still happy. Um like and so like the journeys there and the journeys home were hell but just for like those two or three hours behind the decks it was really worth it and like it, it kept me going and it, it gave me purpose yeah that's a really interesting point actually I mean it's kind of a common thing for a DJ to say that they don't get paid to DJ they get paid to travel right at the best of times traveling is is tough on the kind of touring circuit but like what you've just described is, is is something else entirely and it's pretty amazing really that you've managed to get yourself through it and get yourself into a position now where you know you're 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 in a great place so let's talk about the the name change shall we and the, and the kind of career shift which has brought you to this place so lots of people will know you as dj barely legal which is maybe the best dj name ever <laughs> um, so Tell me about, I mean, how did you get it in the first place? Um, so I, I just turned 16 and I used to come to London because there was like all the stores that sold all the brands I liked. I was always into um, my streetwear and there was um, Hideout in Soho. There was like the Stussy store in Covent Garden. There was like there was a babe store in Soho too. Um, so I used to come to, and it was my birthday, so I wanted to go and spend some money on some designer clothes because I'm materialistic. And so this man was obviously going into all the same stores as me, and he said, "Are you following me?" And then I told him it was my birthday, and he basically paid for this billionaire boys club T-shirt, which was sixty-five quid at the time, which was quite a lot of money to spend on just some random weird little girl we just met who's 16 um I had to prove I was 16 by putting someone on loudspeaker and then he said do you want to come to my offices and I'll show you the latest Adidas shoe design someone's going to come through and show me them and I'm going to approve them or some I don't know some something like that anyways he I went I went there and it was 
with my friend who was also my age and so I didn't feel like anything weird was going to happen and um, he was he was just a bit creepy really and then he said he basically just gave me the nickname barely legal and said if anyone asks who you are you're just like an intern and then like sh- sh- and then just like showed me like kind of taught me about like street art and graffiti and showed me like some of the pieces that were done by like quite big people and how they did them like how they go around with like a bucket of white paint and pretend they're from the council kind of just gave me like I don't know he was quite interesting and but yeah he gave me that weird like nickname of barely legal I thought it was really funny and then um when I when I first when I first recorded my first mix and made a SoundCloud, um, I thought I'm gonna call myself that because it's really funny. And uh, I, it's not that funny actually, that name. I had no idea what happened when he typed that into Google until afterwards. So <laughs> I think it was associated to me looking young, but actually, like it has other connotations, which I quite soon learned about. So that's a, that's the story of how you, how you got it in the first place. Why did you feel like you had to get rid of it? Um, so I, I tried to do a name change and it was really embarrassing actually because it was just like a flop. Um, I tried to change my name to my name and promoters were not having it. And everyone actually really liked my DJ name. They thought it was really quirky and funny. Um, especially in like the bass music worlds. Like no one, it's not a serious world, is it? In terms of names, you've got like names like Funt Case and other names like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then... Let me interrupt you there. And you said promoters weren't having it. Can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, so oh yeah. So I tried to change my DJ name. But obviously, like, everyone knows me. It's barely legal. So they, they didn't want to put my other name on flyers, like the name that I'd come up with, which was embarrassing. I don't... <laughs> It was, but it was Chloe, and then I thought, let me try and think of like a sexy surname rather than just my actual name. So it was like Chloe Mendez, and yeah, hilarious. Like lots of people like to who remind me of those days. But um, it lasted about uh, a week, and I think one promoter put it on a flyer, and it's like nah. Um, and so yeah, I guess. I obviously as you start kind of getting older your tastes develop and I started like losing a lot of love with the shows I was doing which were bass orientated um I started to get older and they the crowd started to get younger and they all they want to hear is stuff they know and I I didn't I wasn't I wasn't up to and I don't I don't like baseline and that was like the majority of like the bass music shows I was doing so it just didn't really work and I thought that I could use my rinse fm show as a showcase to what I do play but it didn't correlate with the shows because my audience wasn't you know was like my audience from bass shows and promoters weren't like I wasn't, I think a lot of people didn't want to like, I don't know, I didn't work on like, on the lineups I wanted to work on because of my name. Like, I, I remember um, my old manager saying that he had a feedback from, uh, from a festival booker and he said like, I'd love to put Chloe on that stage with those people, but I can't because the name just doesn't work. 
Um, right. So, and then um, I'm just going to read out to you what happens when you now type Barely Legal into Facebook. It says, are you sure you want to continue? And then it says, the term you search for is sometimes associated with child sexual abuse, which causes extreme harm to children. If you're having sexual thoughts about children, there are organisations that can provide help. And then you've got the option of get help or continue. So, uh, <laughs> right, that's not really what you want as they say. No, so your, uh, um, career is not. <laughs> no, so it, you know, it was that was kind of right. I have to change it now, <laughs> which is good because I wanted to change it for ages. It's just like that fear of like, am I still going to get booked? Because our promoter's going to feel confident that I can bring my the same audience in and sell the same amount of tickets, etc. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have it coincide with me being brave enough slash like having Alex ADHD help me with the kind of jump to um, being creative and trying to make a track. Um, And then I guess production kind of went like well from the start, really. And um, so, so sorry, just to clarify that. So you hadn't released any music as DJ Barely Legal. You'd just been a DJ, right? Y- yeah. So uh, being able to kind of relaunch as Chloe Robinson as a producer, I guess that's a kind of useful kind of like hook to hang everything off, right? Yeah. And it was a coincidence as well. Like it wasn't intentional. It was just like we were in, in Colombia. It was pandemic. And we just like, that's when he, that's when I... I made my first track and it was it was the pandemic where I decided like I need to I need to come out of this as Chloe Robinson not very legal. So it just coincided and then I I was very lucky like I think I was thinking god I'm going to have to do loads of PR around this and then um as most people know I'm um, Fortet's been like an amazing just an amazing supporter for my career since 2013 I think so years and I sent him I I sent him uh two tracks I sent him Titch and I sent him Pax which is out now um Pax and he tweeted and I also told him um I said what do you think of these and I said um also I'm I'm gonna change my name to Chloe Robinson moving forward and he did a tweet and it said um the best I think it was something like uh, the best club tracks I've heard this year have come from Chloe Robinson and then tagged what was still my Twitter name DJ Barely Legal so like that was the PR like I didn't need to do anything (laughs) because I had him do that which was um so so like you know like so helpful of him because I think he was I think he genuinely really liked the tracks but I think that he knew that would be very helpful for me and my my name change like certainly as well I mean yeah that's you can't buy that kind of publicity right it's just unbelievably helpful when (laughs) something like that happens and yeah just getting support from someone like that is it's great isn't it it's it's amazing when when someone's someone's nice enough to do that for you yeah I know I owe I owe so much to him okay so 
as you mentioned, you wanted to like change the sort of music policy a little bit of your DJ sets, and so so how have you rep- repositioned yourself now, sort of musically? Like, what's what's what are the what? How would you summarize the difference between what you do now as a DJ and what you pre- were doing pre-pandemic as barely legal? Um, I mean, like, I feel like I'm playing kind of similar to probably what I would have been playing in on my radio shows, like my techno and electro and whatnot but um i still i still have a love for bass music i still have a love for dubstep i still have a love for grime um i still have a love for garage so it's not like i'm i've strictly taken that out of my sets i've just been able to now include my own productions which people seem to think are like quite a new fresh sound which is quite quite an honor to hear um so like it's yeah I guess my sets are now um now kind of like less bass music more techno but I've still I still play all those like UK bass sounds that I fell in love with um just everything except bass line <laughs> I don't like bass line I don't know why um but yeah I I predominantly techno now I guess but um yeah still still lots of elements of like the barely legal sounds that I used to play to yeah I guess it's kind of very UK sort of take on techno and and actually techno can work really quite nicely with with certain aspects of bass music I mean I found over the years it's it's definitely a, a compatible thing and I think particularly with regards to the, the 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 primacy of like rhythm over melody. I don't. I know you've you've said before that you don't like melodies, which is which is a great I, quote. But I, I think I do that. like melodies, but I I I haven't accepted them within my own productions yet. I I don't think I like them in my own productions, but like all obviously like a lot of music I play has melody, so I obviously do like it. But. Um, it's just the stubbornness in me. It's like when a child says they don't like a certain food and then they grow up and they're eating it, I think. Yeah, okay. So how do you see yourself then, like, sort of going forward? Because, I mean, like, being being a producer is... It can be a kind of all-encompassing thing. I mean, if you're if you're really kind of going for it, it can, can take over. But as someone who's been, you know, almost exclusively a DJ and you've been doing the circuit for basically 10 years at this point... How do you see your career sort of developing from now? I mean, do you want to do more production? Do you want to kind of get to the point where you're maybe making albums and that kind of stuff? But like, how do you how do you see things like developing? Um, so I'm sitting on I'm sitting on quite a lot of a, a lot of tunes um, that I made with Alex ADHD, and um, I wasn't really sure how what I wanted to do because I was basically holding off from anyone wanting to do anything with my music until. I'd got my EP out. I wanted my first release to be um, the Steeman EP on my own label as a self-release. Yeah, I know. I tried to sign those tracks, so and you said no. <laughs> <laughs> They're still there, um, but yeah. And now, uh, now I'm now I'm like okay. Now I'm free to do what I want to do remixes, uh, to release on other labels if I want to. I mean, it's. There's something just like there's there's something that I don't like about like the greed from certain labels when you release with them, Um, and there's something about just having all that 
control when you do it on your own. But I do have, um, I have, I have agreed to do um, two releases, two two releases so far um, with he, she, they, and because Brains is my manager, so and it's, it's just Brains and the weird and wonderful family are like family to me. So it'd be quite nice to do something with them and then I'm doing something for Fabric Originals so but I yeah I'm I'm holding back I'm saying no to everything else at the minute um and just trying to really work out a plan but I always used to say that I was worried about doing the transition to becoming a producer because I always thought that maybe bookers would be like rather than looking at what I'm up to and like my other content like it might be like oh well she hasn't released since like that many months ago so she's relevant um and that 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 was all that was always a fear that I'd have to like keep having productions out for them to think that I was worthy of being booked but I don't think that's always correct so um I'm not going to put too much pressure on myself to be consistent Regarding like an album or something, I I think all my music's very club orientated, and I think and I quite like the idea of albums sort of, you know, like being more of like a piece of like art, a piece like that's constructively put together rather than like banger, 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 banger. So um, I don't think I'm at that point yet. I think I need to develop on my production skills maybe maybe included a melody um and then you know maybe that's something <laughs> maybe that's something i you know, i don't know how you could do an album with no melody well, you could but it'd be a, it would just it would be i don't know i don't know if it'd be great um might be but uh yeah i think i, I don't think i'm even thinking about that at the moment and you know i think at the moment me and alex are, are kind of wanting to do some like feature stuff so we did the chat with mez um and yeah i'd quite like to keep kind of doing that and experimenting but keeping um keeping our sound so uh, there's quite a lot of people doing that at the moment like you've got like drill artists on house music and i uh, you know you have just heard like flair d on a gorgon city track but there's that there's not no one that's quite done done it with the kind of like music me and Alex are making where we have all our hi hats and stuff come in. So I shouldn't have said that because someone might do it now. <laughs> but yeah, I want to <laughs> quite like to quite like to experiment with with something like that and get do a few feature tracks with some artists that would be interesting to do. Um, and I'm just yeah, I'm just in the talks at the moment with some people that I want to do it with. Yeah, I mean, we've talked on the show previously about how dance music can sometimes be a bit of an awkward fit for the album format. Like dance tracks, you know, work on their own, you know, and there's no, there shouldn't be a, a pressure, I don't think, to necessarily do an album if, if you're making music which isn't going to, you know, naturally fit into that kind of a presentation. It's like, I think people sometimes get to the stage where they, they just think they, they have to do an album because because it's an album right and <laughs> i just don't think it's always necessary at all you know i don't think it necessarily adds anything if you're making bangers then i mean a banger is a banger regardless it doesn't mean on, doesn't need to be on an album right and like the 
the kind of touchstones of dance music are generally speaking just tracks just what are the big tunes of that era right they don't need to be in that album format yeah exactly and it's albums are so different now aren't they and i and people's patience with just like even listening to a track you've got to cut down your length of a track to make it work on spotify um spotify now want you to just be coming through with singles like they're trying to even kind of cut down the concept of an ep i don't know whether you've noticed that as well um Mm. so yeah it's just becoming more and more stripped down now to just like bangers and it's yeah it's it's different i think it's quite hard i think you have to be a really like established like producer to put out an album and for it to be really successful at the moment i don't know whether that's probably incorrect but you know it's there's a lot of work that goes into promoting an album because it's it's a lot it's a lot for someone to take in like that many tracks yeah, totally. I mean, for it to make sense, I think it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different thing entirely. And like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't have to make sense, you know. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's. I want to sort of step back from this a little bit. Go back to the very start. I mean, you told you told the story about how you got the name in the first place. But what got you into like bass music as a not necessarily as a DJ, but what you got, what got you interested in it in the first place? I um. I moved from Birmingham to London when I was 18. So, but I was always into, I've been into grime since I was about f- f- 14, maybe 13, 14. So what, what year was that then? So that was 2009. So when you, grime moved, to, when you moved to London. Yeah. And so I, and it was, you know, when I was legal, so I was legally allowed to go out to clubs and, um, had an unconventional upbringing and it was a very freeing feeling to move to London because um, I was when you, only Sorry, having, I've got to stop you there. What's an unconventional upbringing? I don't want to go too, uh, too deep into it because it's quite deep. But um, okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair no, enough. it not it wasn't the most positive, but it was definitely right. eye-opening. And um, okay, yeah, I saw a lot, I experienced a lot, and. Um. Yeah, that's Very, fair enough. That's absolutely yeah, fair enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so when I moved to London, it was very weird, freeing feeling. I was like, oh my god, I only need to care, care and worry about myself rather than family members. I've kind of stopped having to become like almost a a carer. Um, and. I was like, wow, is this what it feels like to be free? Um, and so I was just like so confident in just being, going to raves on my own. And I was like looking at lineups and there were so many good grime lineups. So I was just like going out to all the different raves I wanted to go to, like dependent on who was playing. Um, and then I discovered Plastic People so I was there literally every Thursday. Um, I think it just changed from Sunday to Thursday. So this is this is forward, right? Forward, yeah, forward. forward sorry. Just before we talk about that, what were the raves that you, the grime raves that you got into when as soon as you moved down? Tell me a little bit about those. Like, which what kind of DJs were you into, and what which raves? Uh I mean, like, I specifically remember going to like. I think it might have been called like the den or the end. Yep. 
And it was like yep. a charity rave for like Haiti. Um, and it was like just a mad lineup of like skeps from people on it. Um, and then there was like, there was like Tim and Barry doing their just jam things, like, but they were not doing the live streams, but doing the actual events. I, I can't specifically remember, but there was like, it was like odd things here and there. Um, and I can't remember exactly. But then obviously I, then I discovered like the forward parties, which, and there was always Grime MCs coming through to those, I remember. Um, mm. And then like, that became one of like the key parties I was at every week. Well, let, let, let me ask you the question, like walking into forward in, in 2009, 2010, that was like, that's like peak forward, right? In terms of like the popularity and like the, uh, yeah. the kind of whole hype around it. So, so tell me what it was like walking into Plastic People for the first time. I don't remember my first time. I think I, I think there, I think I saw a lineup and I don't think I, I think I had a queue for ages. I got there just as it opened so then from then on, I used to just get there for 9.30, knowing that I would definitely get in because it was 100 capacity, wasn't it? So Paris, um, Dwayne, uh, whose who's producer name now is Paris, he used to be like me and me and him would just be like standing there at 9.30, just me and him like <laughs> on our own in the queue. And I remember like being like, hi, like, uh, and he didn't really drink. He was like, he was quite a sober raver and I was quite the opposite um, but I don't think he minded me too much it wasn't too annoying but anyway I I, befriend, I befriended him because I was like you know we were both here on our own like, what's your name um, and that's yeah I used to, I, I can't remember my first experience but I remember it being so good to the point where I would be there at 9.30 every Thursday and for people who never got to go to Plastic People just describe what it what it's like as a venue or what it was like it's just like i feel like it was just pretty it was really dark like kind of like almost pitch black the dance floor so you just sort of like just sort of get lost in it and the djs are kind of level to you and they're also in the dark and it it was just a community and it was just all about the music there was no image involved and it was just stripped down to basics and um and obviously it was just it was just a really interesting time for music. It was when it was when dubstep was really popular. Um and that's how I kind of got into dubstep. And then you had like the post dubstep era. Um, I don't know what you'd call it, future garage. Um mm like that James Blake kind of sound. Uh, so uh, Forward basically just had like all the people that I was listening to like on the lineups every every week. I remember going and the lineup was like James Blake, I think it was Ramadan Man and maybe two, maybe Ben UFO and one other person. But it was like James was the warm up, um, which was quite funny. Yeah. Uh <laughs> but yeah like incredible um and then i and then i i can't i think i can't remember who i knew at boiler room at the time um but i was i think i went to like the first one of the first boiler rooms um 
I think James was playing and it was like snowing outside and there was like a handful of people in there. And because I always knew the location of the boiler rooms, I was like going to those every week as well. So I was absolutely spoiled for like, yeah, for music and for seeing people, seeing different DJs and stuff. And I'm um, just, I remember just like, there was just something a bit odd about the way that I was as a raver. I, I kind of like... I kind of like would listen to them, but in my head be thinking like, if if they'd have played this tune, it would have gone down much better. I kind of <laughs> had that mentality as a raver rather than just being like lost and like enjoying the experience. I was like, I didn't care about like the technicalities or the clanging, but I was very much like involved in the selection and like there'd be times where I was thinking like why they just play that they should have if they played that that would have worked really well kind of thing and then because I used to go out, on, out, go out on my own a lot I befriended a lot of people at these raves and a lot of the DJs used to talk to me I think they just saw me on my own so um I kind of networked without realizing and then I became really good friends with Silky and he just told me like he was really straight he was like you're a mess and I was like okay he's like you're in a very toxic relationship and you are just like getting so fucked up and you're very emotional and you need something else I was at university and I was working for Burberry part-time so I was I was active and I was like busy, but I didn't really have an identity. And he was like, you're already like collecting records and stuff. I think you should buy some Technics. So that's that's what kind of made me buy Dex. And it was like, there was literally no intention of being a DJ. It was just like, right, I do probably do need a hobby on top of going out. So what year was this? Um, 2011 maybe yeah my second year of university I did I did a foundation arts thing before I went to university so it was like three years into being in London because I did my foundation thing in London too if that makes sense yeah okay so so you buy a set of decks yeah so tell me what's what's the journey from buying decks to uh to ending up on one extra which you did about a year later I think it was even I think it was even quicker than that. <laughs> um, I buy I buy the decks. I go I go to um, a forward rave, but it was at Brixton Academy. Maybe oh, I was also going to loads of DMZs as well. I forgot about that. Um, like well, not loads, but everyone of the years. Um, and I met Scratcher. And I did. I don't think that I was that arrogant. But apparently, he said that I was like boasting about how I bought decks and how I think I'm quite a good DJ and got quite a good selection. <laughs> so he was like, "Right, deliver me a mix by Tuesday." And I, I was like, "Okay, cool." So I did that, and he was like, "This is actually really good." And then he, he aired it on rinse, like probably probably like a day after or something. So I was like, okay, wow. And I made a SoundCloud and put the mix up and got like 500 followers in like a day or two, which I think is like really quick wow. back then. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's... Um, I then got told by a friend that Mr. Jam had a segment called 1500 Seconds of Fame and that he was 
actively calling out for from females. He was like, look, there's like such a small representation of females and could some females please submit a mix? So I submitted the same mix that I did for for Scratcher and they got back to me quite late, but they were like, this is like really, really good. Is it exclusive? And I said, no. So I did another mix and um, it got aired and I was like the first female to do 15, 1500 Seconds of Fame. It was a mix of um, mainly like garage and grime and like a bit of like future garagey stuff like... I don't know, I think I had like some dark sky and stuff like that in it. Um, and and then it became a, like a residency and he had mainly like really, really big names like Flosha Dharmas and stuff like that, people that were like relevant at that time. And then he picked two people from the people who'd like, you know, two like newcomers who'd some, who he'd like me. Uh, whose mixes mixes had aired from that segment called 1500 seconds of fame and i was one of them and he kind of like it would work on like maybe like a couple of months schedule and then they decide whether they wanted to continue with you or not and i think i i think i continued for like i think maybe i well it would lasted for about two years so uh was that sorry was that was the show every week or every month it was it was it was a rotation, so mine was every two weeks. Wow, I mean that's a lot. So that's that's great exposure, right? I mean that yeah, really is yeah, for someone yeah. someone who's brand new. That's incredible to to have that opportunity. I remember thinking like I'm not ready for this. Like this is all a bit of a fluke. And I like I remember putting a, um, a Facebook status out when people used to actually write Facebook statuses, being like I've been given this opportunity. Like I really don't feel ready. Like. I've got so much on at uni and I'm working. What should I do? And then everyone was like, just do it. And then I was really, yeah, really yeah. scared. And then, um, yeah, I just, I just did it. And um, it was, it was, it was really good actually. And it was, it, it was really, I, I discovered so many artists. I gave like quite a lot of people like their first ever radio plays who, who like do well now. Like I feel like Manu Lang when from back in the day like etch quite quite a lot of names i gave them well that's the that's the thing about that's the thing about doing a a regular radio show because it forces you to search for music right there's there's no there's no alternative you you have to do it so you're digging through stuff which you never would do normally and it's, it's it's a great experience actually and you do find stuff that you wouldn't find otherwise yeah yeah um and it was and it it was more personal back then i think now like you can discover someone and then as soon as you share them, like everyone knows about them and stuff. Whereas like it was more personal. It was more of an approach of like someone personally sending you a track and then not being that social media exposure of like Instagram and stuff where like if you play the track and then someone reposts you playing it and then you tag them and then everyone knows who the, you know what I mean? There wasn't that, there wasn't that distance of that person to reach other people because of social media back then. Yeah, let me let me ask you a question about that. Actually, um, like, I I feel like there's less of an onus on playing unreleased music now. Do you think is that is that true? Do you think? Do you mean like it's it's less important? 
Yeah, like as a DJ, I feel like because because back back then, say like that that kind of era, it was a real kind of like DJ arms race. Like you wanted to have as many new upfront tunes as possible, like as as ex- many exclusives as possible, like and all that. That was a real culture around that, and I feel like that's kind of like dropped back a little bit. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, I think there's almost like something more powerful in having discovered like a track from say like 1992 that no one else knows right and that being like one of your do you know what i mean one of your like power tracks um i mean there are like it's probably like one track that at the moment that i would say is a dub that like is quite a cool dub that i play which is like rumble by like skrillex fred again and fortet but apart from that like i don't i i i don't really i mean i've i've got loads of i've got loads of like my own unreleased stuff and like loads of alex's and loads of like uh, forthcoming label things from people like villager um nikki nair and stuff so like my set is mainly like new music anyway but it's kind of just like music from within my family and it's not me playing it because it's unreleased and like a dub it's me playing it because I'm like excited to release it and trying to kind of just, just test it out and see how it goes down and because I love because I like it of course. But it's not that I'm not playing it because it's an unreleased tune, which is what I think there was more way more of that back back in the day for sure. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I mean it definitely feels like there's less expectation from from the crowds, from the audience. Like people really definitely well it felt like back then that there was a that was a kind of way of judging a DJ, you know, like how many how many dubs have you got? Like, you know, and that just doesn't really that doesn't seem to factor in anymore. I don't know. I mean why why do you think that is? Um, I I'm not sure because I felt like I felt like it maybe like it was kind of like a thing when I was playing like in the bass music scene and then I when I moved to like the house and techno world it was just like way more open-minded people and you didn't have to play a banger to get their attention and if you played something new they were listening to it and when I say new I mean something they hadn't heard before whether that's unreleased whether that's from back in the day so I don't, I've just gone from like one world where everything's a lot different to another. So I can't really like give, I don't really know if that makes sense. Cause I just thought that that was how the house and techno world was. It was like lesser expectations, but I don't know whether like back in the day it was, that was also, there was also like, like a dub culture in that world as well. of like playing unreleased music. I don't know. Cause I wasn't from that world. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely right that it's, always been less of a thing in house and techno like with with house and techno it's much more of a just sort of creating a vibe in a dj set rather than sort of having these big moments although i mean that's changed a little bit in in recent years but i think just at a general level it's um the expectation of the crowd is to is for the dj to just just create something as a whole rather than getting a rewind you know and that's what that's what really frustrated me when i was back in my original incarnation as a kind of dubstep slash space music dj that's what really annoyed me about playing those shows was the kind of rewind arms race and having to you know put up with that and like playing these short sets and just like going for the banger after banger after banger and 
I just found it quite limiting, you know, and it was such a yeah. It was such a kind of refreshing thing for me to be able to go and play f- like three, four hour sets and not have a not not have an MC demanding that I pull up every tune. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it sounds like a similar sort of thing for you, right? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, completely. Um, just thinking about that, actually, I feel like there are very few. Um, few acts that managed to successfully transition into like bass into like house and techno with their same name yeah. I'm just sort of thinking about it you I feel like B traits managed to do it as well um scream but like there aren't many so yeah I mean I think every scene has its own kind of like little ecosystem and you have to be accepted by that ecosystem and it's not straightforward you know at all i think i think it's true for for every scene that like there are there are sort of i guess differing degrees of acceptance but like it's by no means guaranteed if you decide you want to do another another genre of music quite a lot of people try and fail you're right you're absolutely right and you know you i think you have to be committed to it sufficiently but i, I actually think that the people who have done it, and it Scream's a great example because he's done it, but he's always sort of sort of uh, emphasised that he's kind of open-minded musically, and that was kind of the same yeah. approach that I took. So I didn't go, I never went full techno, you know, I never went full, like, you know, it was always kind of thing like, I like music and I will play at your party and I'll, I'll play just as well as anyone else at your party, but I'm not 100% committed to it. And sometimes that's a better way, ironically, you know, I think people kind of respect that. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you there. That makes complete sense. Um, I think when you when you kind of try and pretend that you weren't even part of that of the world that you've like moved from, um, it's different. But yeah, I found it incredibly difficult to be like accepted. Um, I, I, like I was basically, I just wasn't accepted as barely legal, and I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I think partly, although I did get books for like Sarko Loco as barely legal, which was quite cool. Um, I remember when I got that booking, and I was thinking like, people are gonna be like, f you, basically. <laughs> and uh, I was in the green room at Fabric, and um, someone's tour manager, won't say who they were, basically cornered me. And was like, yeah, like, how the F did you get that? And I was just <laughs> like, well, um, my my manager looks after, my old manager looks after a someone who plays techno and makes techno. So I was already talking about them and then, like, put my name forward as an, like, option, sent them, I think they sent them, like, one of my radio shows with Mo Selector as a guest and they just like they just like decided to buy it and they were being it was 2019 and I feel like their lineups were like they were quite interesting and quite daring and like not they they'd like kind of like booked people that you wouldn't expect anyway he said to me like that it was very very undeserving and that I shouldn't have been I shouldn't have got given that um that booking because I come from the grime and garage world like that makes a difference and that um actually it was selfish and that I was taking up space for someone who deserved that slot um that that attitude is just fucked it's totally fucked I mean but it's it's quite a lot of people think that yeah and I already had that anxiety so I was like 
oh my god maybe like they're right but um but like brains like my management was in the green room at the time and he um he just stepped in and i like i just i just took my way i just took myself away from the situation and brains had a word so uh so i was okay yeah people but, really get it's just such a dumb attitude it really is like it's like it's completely anti artistic i think like but people have these kind of weird relationships with with music scenes and they kind of get tribalistic almost about it it's like being in a political party or something you know it's like you can't go from one to the other right? yeah so, fucking crazy so anyway you described getting on to one extra and mm-hmm. um and playing on there regularly so how did your playing out develop out of that like at what point did you start getting busy with 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 shows i became a resident for two events um regulate and loud noise um that were at i think they were usually at like cable but maybe like a few other venues so i was like i was getting to kind of play those shows like quite regularly with like really really cool bass names at the time for me and then I was getting started beca- getting quite a lot of like headline regional shows um, when I was like on one extra because they just put one extra next to my name and and then I and then I I started getting booked quite regularly at Fabric as like the warm up DJ. So I think I did my first ever Fabric booking, two thousand and twelve, maybe like a year and a half into DJing, which is like. Yeah, a bit, a bit soon, a bit soon. But um, but thank you, Dave Gamble, who booked me at the time, and Sean Roberts, um, who always supported me. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of I start. I mean, once people start seeing you on those sort of lineups, then I feel like yeah, your name sort of travels a bit more. And then 2013, I used to base. Oh yeah, so I used to intern with Tim and Barry. Um, so I used to be at all the just jams and like don't really know what I used to do I just used to like look after the artists so I met quite a lot of DJs through doing that and that's how Forte Kieran picked up on me he saw one of my just jam streams on YouTube I think we were meant to have french fries but french fries was in France and it did like there with the connection wasn't working so like they they were just like do you want to step in I was like yeah and so I I did like a just jam and it I don't know I don't think it was fantastic but I looked like I was having a lot of fun and I was playing like my honest selection of what I liked at the time and then he contacted Sean Roberts and was like um, you know just like kind of confirming like is she is she cool kind of thing like to work with whatever I don't know why he asked but this is why it's important to have a professional attitude at shows and because people will speak to promoters to check in on you and check in whether you're yeah absolutely I mean like I, I always have that conversation with with new artists that we're doing on on the label or you know someone who wants to get involved like it's so important how you they've all got very big egos these young ones yeah no I know it's so important how you conduct yourself because people remember that and and like you say yeah. like it's it's quite it's quite a small world and promoters everyone talks to each other and if you get a bad reputation in that kind of a way, then it's really damaging. Yeah, of course. And so in 2013, 
I'd, I'd never met Porter before. He randomly did a tweet and it was just a tweet of one of my SoundCloud mixes. It just said this. I don't even think he tagged me. I was like, oh my God. And then I had a request to play his warehouse project and his all day event um, at Village Underground, which was like a really cool lineup. Um, so like once I got onto that warehouse projects lineup, which was a, an incredible like curation, like I, I look back at it now, I'm like, wow. Um, that's when I then got approached by, I think it was like maybe Elastic Agency. And that's when I started to kind of grow a little bit there. And then, yeah, I guess that was like another big like, booking that kind of got me seen by people and how did you find touring because we, t- we talked a, uh, a bit at the top about the crazy schedule that you're doing now and the kind of general sort of difficulties that it, doing a lot of traveling can entail so how did you find especially as you're pretty young at that point how did you find doing the circuit generally oh easy I don't know I didn't I just didn't I had a lot of stamina I've just been going to all the student after parties afterwards and partying <laughs> way too much but on the, like during like during the shows um but it was it was like I would I'd have I had to work though like I was working every weekend so I'd have to somehow like get back to London for like a shift at Harrods and uh, it was <laughs> I had to make it work but I did and I don't feel like I struggled too much because even if I didn't have a show, I would be going out to a rave and coming back at six in the morning and then going to work. Like I was a big, I was a big advocate of never, never ever trying to miss a shift. Like I, I just didn't, I just didn't do that. It's like I've never ever missed one booking, no matter what, what, no matter what, like physical state I've been in. I've made every show, and I think I just, I don't. I was just young. I don't. Yeah, like. <laughs> Oh, it's just easy, like, because I was just used to, like, minimal sleep. Yeah, I mean, if you're a party person anyway, then, yeah, it can be helpful <laughs> in, in that respect. Yeah, and I think having, like, having things I had to kind of be up for and be present for, like, working at Harrods just meant, like, cause you just get on with it, do you know what I mean? Like, you don't even think about, like, oh, this is going to be hard. You just kind of get on with it, so... Yeah, and then um, and then I quit Harrods because my auntie said, um, "When your dissertation? When is your dissertation due?" And I was like, two weeks." She's like, "I've started it." I was like, "Nope." And she's like, "You need to do that." So she was like, "I will financially help you and pay," which is very kind of her, and pay what you would usually get paid or a bit less at Harrods because I got paid quite a bit because it was like commission based as well. Um, and then it ended up being a situation where she didn't pay me anything and I actually like didn't utilize the weekends for university uni work but I utilized it to go and play shows in other cities <laughs> um, but yeah I had that freedom then of being able to do that but I was only getting booked in the UK so it wasn't a mad schedule for me ever but there were like there were like minimal European bookings for me so it wasn't that hard yeah I mean obviously bass music is a uh 
Well, I mean, the, the base music scene in the UK is big enough so you can play a pretty full schedule and just be within that territory. So when did you, uh, once you graduated, when, did you go full-time DJing straight away or did you have to have a day job for a bit? Like, what happened there? Um, went full-time and then went back because I was... I found it really hard to get back into getting a part-time job in retail because no one wanted me because I said I really, really need my weekends. Um, and they really like they really wanted that like free like, freedom of you being able to work on the weekends, obviously. So I got I ended up like having another part. I ended up finding a retail job that accepted me to just have to work in the week which was like quite rare and it was like it was really it was really like really not great pay compared to um compared to working for Burberry and Harrods so uh I was on like I was on rubbish money and then and then my actually and then my radio one extra residency came back round and they asked me to do it again and then I decided that I was like making enough money from the like, cause they paid you to do it to kind of sack off. Or I think I, I think I went down to like one day a week at retail, and then I was just like, this is, I don't even know if this is worth it. Like I'm not making any money from retail really. It was like seven pounds something an hour, and I was like, it's probably spending like ten pound on my lunch. <laughs> Like I was just like not making any money. And then I got onto like, uh, and then I got a new, uh, then I got a manager and then I got, an, an, and then I moved to a new agency as well. And that just like brought my money up completely. Like my new agency got me onto the festival circuit. I was never a festival like person um, and like got me onto the circuit. And then I just sort of like, I don't know, became like networked and became friends with lots of people that do the festivals and got rebooked and, and yeah, managed to survive solely off DJing, I think through, through management and a good agency. Yeah. I mean, having a good team obviously is crucial, right? And, um, yeah, being able to, uh, to get on that festival circuit, like, I mean, festivals been, you know, become increasingly important and um, just the, I mean, the, the fees are generally so much better. And if you can get on that circuit, then it, it can make your, well, it does make your career as a DJ if you if you can get into that position. So that's, that's obviously crucial. I wanted to ask you about your label, which you set up in, I think it was 2016, pretty weird is, is the label. Um at what point did you start wanting to do that? And like, what was what were your, what were your kind of motivations behind setting that up and launching it? I really enjoyed the aspect of finding new. Like, I found it way more cooler to be playing like people's tunes on one extra that had like never had a radio play before. Who I was like, wow, these are really good, and discovering new acts. And I found it. I got a lot of pleasure out of their excitement and just like I just enjoyed discovering new acts and new music so I guess that like A&R side of things I was I've always I'd always wanted to do a label and then um I then I got a manager who like helped me actually bring that to life it was a very long process and a lot of a lot of the things went wrong at the start 
um i mean like my first release was meant to be with when and it was meant to be on vinyl and i had a p and d deal and they just took so long with the with the con the contract was wrong and they took me like it took six months to get back to me with the right contract by then when it signed to big dad everyone was like i can't do any other releases so I was like, okay, and I'd <laughs> I'd got that when tune, and well, I ha- well Forte I played it in his essential mix with Jamie XX, so I thought that it might have done quite well, but um, yeah, it kind of and I'd done like some press around like the when release too, but that never really happened, and then and then yeah, and then I guess I I decided to just like keep it digital because it was just easier, um, but I I wasn't very consistent with it. It's only been more recently that I've, I well, Alex, basically Alex has been helping me a lot with the label now. So it's not just me. Um, and just, I, I'm, I've kind of needed a bit of help whilst I've been ill, to be honest. Just, mo- just motivational help, really. Um, mm. And just sort of support and being, because like, there's days when I'm just, I can't do anything when I, when I can. I just need someone to be like, yeah, yeah you can do it kind of thing. And um, I... But yeah, I met Alex and I really liked his... So he's also called Alexander and, you know, he's got a release coming up on Deep Medi. He's done Scotch Bonnet and he's already got a following from that, but he never had any of his techno stuff released and he'd only just made the name, like, when he met me. So I was like, right, why don't I put out your ADHD stuff? And then when he was in LA... I wanted to connect him with Nikki Nair. So Nikki actually flew to Alex's like parents' house in LA and they never met before and they started collaborating and getting on really well. And now they're kind of like best mates, which is like cool. Right, yeah. And then, yeah, and then it kind of, it was just like, wow, it's kind of like, I'm kind of creating a little family here of like a consistent sort of... um roster of people that i'd like to continue releasing with and then we've got villager now and then there's some collaborations going on there and then there's some new names that are coming up that i want to kind of get involved too and like me and nikki and alex force i've done a tune together that's coming out so um yeah so i guess when alex since i met alex um i guess and like kind of got him in the studio with nikki like the whole ethos of the label kind of changed and realised that I realised that I could actually create like a family and a roster that kind of made sense and became like staple um, people that I would like re-release with. Whereas before it was all a bit random. With the name change, I mean, your your personal name change, was there a sort of temptation to kind of like make a break with, with the label as well? Or, I mean, because obviously there's a degree of, continuity there but um i mean were you tempted just to, to, to completely change everything when you changed dj names no i used the label as an umbrella brand and i because i wasn't getting on the lineups i wanted to get on prior to changing my name i decided to do like my own like pretty weird lineups and pretty weird festival stages and did like two or three rounds of those and i basically put myself on lineups I wanted to be on with acts I wanted to be on lineups with myself if that makes sense through yeah. pretty weird so um 
yeah, so I just kept it going because I was already like, I'd already done a couple of pretty weird curated shows with acts that I wouldn't usually have been booked with as Barely Legal, but I would have worked as Chloe Robinson. So they didn't, I didn't feel that I need to kind of change the label name or anything or change any of that. So I just kept that moving forward. But I did utilise the, yeah, I did utilise it as a, as a tool to kind of like put myself on lineups that I wanted to be on. If promoters weren't doing it, I'll do it myself. <laughs> if the acts were down to do it. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the whole thing that you've just been talking about, basically what we talked about the whole hour and a bit, it's really a great example of how to kind of reposition a career and how to kind of move it in the direction that you want to do. Because, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on on the podcast generally is how individual artists struggle to influence their own careers and how difficult it can be. I mean, like last week's episode with with Teed, like we were we talked like at length about you know the various different barriers that you face as an artist and how many how the kind of pressures to do things in a certain way. I mean, lots of the stuff that you've said so far has been basically talking about, you know, overcoming those pressures. Like the classic one is like the promoter who doesn't want to book you because because you're changing changing your DJ name, you know. Like, I mean, on the one hand, you can completely understand what their position is because they were trying to sell tickets, but equally, you know, it's just like those sorts of things just build up into a yeah, just a pretty difficult situation. But it, and it's great that you've you've managed to put it off. I think it's amazing actually that you've you've been able to um yeah completely just change everything and move the whole thing in the direction that you wanted to be going in. It's great. Thank you. Um, I won't take full credit for that. For that though, I'll definitely say that. Thank you to Forte for sure. And um, you know, he then went on to show my music to Skrillex. Who then showed his music my to Tice from Noisia, who's now like someone that you know we've been like collaborating with. I think he's been doing quite a lot of Nikki at the moment. Um, so it's just like those key people that have really helped. And then like thanks to like Alex ADHD for helping me with the production side of things as well because that was like a really key thing to helping with the name change going smoothly and yeah I guess like thanks to all the promoters that kind of trusted me um when I did warehouse project for example I had like two with two bookings and I had one and it was a really basic basic one and then I had another and it was the foretet one and then the four set one, I was going back to back with special requests, which was a massive deal for me. And that was like the first show that I labelled myself as Chloe Robinson on. So because I, you know, that was like a really good look to be going back to back with special requests. And thank you to him for like saying yes from when I asked him if he'd be down. So I, it's, it, I, I definitely can't take like full credit for how well it's gone, but um yeah like I mean everyone needs help don't they but there's been people that have definitely helped me but I yeah it's it's gone really smoothly like it's gone so much better than expected and I am really proud of myself for just like coping this year really with everything that I've had going on and just because I've I feel like I've had to do the shows really like I I feel like I didn't have a choice I couldn't just disappear 
and then come back because it was such a crucial time like with a name change and with an EP and all this stuff so yeah um yeah, yeah so like I, I'm going to give myself credit as well for sure yeah yeah no absolutely you certainly deserve <laughs> much of the credit anyway um okay so the last thing I wanted to ask you about was something I picked up from an interview that you gave in 2016 and you asked a question about like sexism in the music industry and that whole issue because I mean 2016 is when it like really started I think becoming a sort of like something that people really started to take seriously and the quote that you that you made in that interview was that you said quote I don't suffer any sexism or misogyny and if it happens I've been lucky not to have experienced it and I just wondered if your sort of view had changed well I mean not your view I mean like do you think about it any differently to how you thought about it back in 2016? I, I must have said that before I did my Mixed Mag Lab in 2016 because, wow, that's when I first experienced full-on really? sexism. Yeah, and, like, it absolutely broke me. I was doing a Mixed Mag Lab and I was wearing um, just, like, a crop top, but I've, like, I've got quite big boobs, so I had I, I had cleavage showing and I was wearing, like, a really baggy, like, bathing ape, um, like, shark hoodie over it. So I was like pretty covered up like and there were all these comments about how like how I was fat, how I was ugly, how like wh- how I, where is she coming from? Is she coming from the gym? Um, and it was it was relentless and it was honestly like that. I, I can't describe to you how bad the comments were and how many there were and no one from Mixmag was monitoring it so I I just read I saw it all straight after and it completely broke me and broke my confidence and I don't think I've worn a crop top really like to a show since I've just like lived in baggy t-shirts so I must have made that quote before that happened and right. I, I came from I came from grime and I was the only girl in grime. And like, I don't think there was really any girls like in the garage scene either. And I just, I've, I guess I was just like one of the guys. And like, I had to hold my own. And if anyone made any comments, I'd just like slam them down straight away. And I was like, I think a lot of people like, a lot of people assumed my sexuality and assumed that I was a lesbian because of how I carried myself. So... A lot of people didn't, I don't, people didn't, re- and I, I had, I knew, I knew every DJ and every lineup, like they were all my friends. So like, I don't think anyone would dare step to me like at these parties. And I did get, you know, I did obviously get the odd, like turning up to a show with bouncer being like, you're not the DJ, me then having to get the promoter to come or like just that happened a lot. But I like, but in terms of like sexism, I yeah, I didn't experience that much of it. And I think it was the way that I carried myself and just coming from like such, coming from grime, you just have to just like get on with shit. Like, and, right. and yeah, I did. And like, yeah, it would have been, that would have been like pre-Mix Mag Lab. Yeah, that sounds fucking awful. Um, So do you think in the periods sort of in those six years, do you think it's like generally improved in the music industry for like female performers? No, <laughs> I think there's a lot more of them, but I'm right. still seeing the same comments crop up and I'm still seeing the same judgments and I'm still seeing the same, like, just the same crap. Um, and 
you know, like, yeah, I think I think there's always going to be that. And I don't think there's been a massive improvement, but... Is it as simple as just guys are dicks? I mean, is, do you think that's just it? I think guys are dicks, guys are jealous, and guys have this assumption that you've got you've got your foot up in the industry because you're a woman. Whereas actually, if you're doing well as a woman in the industry, you've actually had to kind of work harder. Like people watch you harder. People criticise you harder. And I don't think males realise that. And they just assume like, oh, like because you're like fit or because you're this or because you're that. Or, you know, for me, it was like the people were questioning like who I was sleeping with, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um... (laughs) So yeah, I think that, I think it's that assumption and that jealousy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult to know how how it does improve. I think well, one of the things we talked about on the show actually is the difference between getting more women on lineups and getting more women like making music, like just generally a sort of grassroots kind of a level. And I think a lot of the well, I, I think an an aspect of all of what you've just talked about, like yeah, women have to work harder. I think like a lot of that comes from the fact that it's seen as being a guy's thing, certainly on a production kind of level. And I think it would be really, one of the things that would really improve it would, would be to have a much higher degree of participation with women making tunes. Like I think it would really make a difference. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think there's, um, you know, I, you've got, I've, what did I see recently? I saw um, Imogen doing a, a cool, like, workshop um, with Estelle, I can't remember her surname, from uh, Berlin. Mm. Um, you know, doing a workshop for women, and Flavor D's done quite a lot of them. Uh, Chippy Nonstop does them as well. I feel like Lucy's done one or two as well. And but I think you know what I I I remember like really looking up to Monkey when I was like coming through like I was like oh my god because my dream was to be on Rinse FM as well. She was on Rinse. She was playing at Forward, and she like made a comment which I completely agreed with. And at the end of the day, like it's it's like it's like football. Like it's more of a male interest. Like music's more of a male interest, production is more of a male interest, and that's why there's less females. Like it's just, it's just naturally that's the ratio. So I, I don't all like I, I'm definitely not completely for like oh there needs to be fifty fifty, because like at, at the end of the day it needs to just be a good balance of good acts, and like there are so many like good female acts that like if there are some missing on lineups and that's ridiculous because there's so many like strong ones to pick one frick pick from now like but at the end of the day the ratio of females to males producing is not balanced so like if you start trying to make it 50 50 you're going to reduce the quality i feel potentially if we're looking at like big big lineups i mean that's the thing like um because, like I said, there is a difference. Because it's, it's one thing having fifty-fifty lineups, but if you don't have fifty-fifty, or if you don't have a much better ratio of of producers, then then you're right. There's great female DJs and there's great female producers. You know, like it's it's not a question of one being better than the other. It's just a you know, I mean, from an artistic perspective, it's just let's get like the best thing possible, and and then hopefully, like with with higher participation, like we get a kind of good mix of people from 
not it's not just a gender thing either all kinds of diversity you know i think that's obviously the the, the goal yeah exactly and i think um I think that I think it's just like times have changed now. I think back then, especially like it just wasn't a there just wasn't an interest in like in girls really. There's a proper tomboy thing, and now that that girls are at rave seeing like seeing a, a lot more females or like female identified people behind the decks, it's you know they're like oh maybe I want to give that a go kind of thing. And it's so I think they'll, I think the next generation, there's going to be like a lot more females coming through. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like different back in the day. Like you didn't have, you didn't really see that many, that many. Like, yeah. It's about, it's about role models, isn't it really? When you see people doing it. It's yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like my role model when I was growing up was bloody Steve-O from Jackass. Like I was born a tomboy. So like I used to spend my my weekends doing stunts and putting videos together of my stunts with my like girl mate who was also like tomboy. So I've, I've kind of always been like that way acclimbed and like English, is that the right word? And um, I've always kind of had like a lot more male friends. So you kind of like bounce off your 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 friends. I think when you're growing up, in terms of interests and whatnot. So yeah, I think that's got got a key thing. That, okay, my words are not coming out, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Well, listen, this has been great. Just just one more thing, last one. Just give me your top three new tunes or top three dubs in your bag at the moment. Oh my god, you've just thrown that at me. Um, one second. <laughs> I know, that's a bad question. Uh, <laughs> Not your top three, th- just three that come to mind as being big ones at the moment you're playing. Uh, I quite like this new Fixate tune, which is called 129 Space Line. That's a banger. And obviously Fixate's known for his 160, but this is at 129 BPM and... Uh, apparently i think he sent it to me and annoyingly like i didn't sign it um and it's out on um it's out on sambinger's label pineapple records um that's a banger and what else there's um a new addison groove tune that i may or may not be putting out um that's unreleased though let me try and give you but yeah um look out for that one it's called yeah what or yeah whatever yeah what but it's spelled w-u-t and there's a track by uh adhd called 212 um which is forthcoming but very far down the line in 2023 as part of an ep um that oh yeah and then i'm just gonna do one more sorry it's a tune by me, Nikki, and Alex called uh, Get In The Bin, which I've been playing a lot. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. It's been awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad that we managed to get this stone at last. Yeah, that was Chloe Robinson. Really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed having it. She has had a really interesting career, generally speaking, and is 
really quite a resilient person, I think is a fair assessment coming away from that conversation. She's been through an awful lot and just seems to just keep going. You know, like I use the word stoic in the conversation and that's really this, the impression I have of her. She's just an incredibly driven and professional person who's been really successful and that's great. That is absolutely great. So, like I said at the top, it's Pledge Drive Week. So if you're enjoying the show, if you want to support us directly, patreon.com slash official is the place to go and do it. Get your free Bandcamp 50% off voucher or Musicality t-shirt for this week only. We're not going to do another week. This is the second week of Pledge Drive, so we're just going to do that and that's going to be it. So, like I said, if you haven't done already, then this is the time to do so. If you're not going to do that, then leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does help the show. So if you're not able or not willing to give us money, then that is a reasonable alternative. Follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes, and join us in the Discord, hotfoshrecordings.com slash Discord. If you've got anything to say at all, join us in the community there. It's, um, yeah, it's popping off in there. It's good. Some really cool people. Okay, we're done. I will check you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, wow.